Welcome to I Dare You, a series through the book of Daniel with Skip Heitzig. Status quo. You've heard the term. It's actually from the legal dictionary. It means the current state of affairs or the existing state of things, things as they are. But it's a term that has come to mean unchanged or not different or not distinct, even boring, you know, just status quo. But you know, when kids grow up, they don't want to be different. They don't want to be distinct. They want to be like the rest of the group, the rest of the crowd. It's called peer pressure. Um, to conform to being like the popular ones, the thin ones, the fashionable ones, the smart ones. Um, on television some time ago, there was a, a special documentary and teenagers were interviewed and they asked them, what is the biggest problem that you can see in your own lives? All of them said, the biggest problem we face is peer pressure, the pressure to conform to the group. So it's all about conformity, but some, somewhere along the line, as we get older, somebody decides that individuality is much cooler than conformity. Be yourself, your own expression, individuality. And so you're encouraged to be yourself as long as that individuality conforms to what the group calls cool individuality. So back in the 1960s, it was all about the counterculture. I was just a wee little tot, but I saw the cry for freedom and we're different from our parents and we're the unique generation. And so the songs were all about a revolution. We're honest, we're edgy. That's what the music portrayed. But the amazing revelation came one day when I heard that same revolutionary music in the elevator. And in the dentist's office, suddenly the whole counterculture thing became now mainstream. Did you know that the Bible actually calls us to be countercultural? Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed, utterly, totally changed by the renewing of your minds. We're beginning a new series in a remarkable book, the book of Daniel. It is an incredible document. It's an incredible book. It's a book that the first half centers on the man, Daniel. The second half, the message of Daniel. The first part is about the prophet. The second part is about the prophecies. But as remarkable as all of that will become, there's the person himself that stands out as a very courageous individual. So we've called the name of the series, I Dare You. Because of the daring way Daniel lived in Babylon so many years ago. Now you know what a dare is. A dare is simply a challenge. Usually it's a challenge to prove that you're courageous. And so kids will say, I dare you. And then it goes, well, I double dare you. Then it's, I double dog dare you. And it goes on. It amplifies as the conversation goes on. But the idea of the dare with the book of Daniel isn't really new or unique. It actually is borrowed from a song in the 1800s penned by a Sunday school teacher in Chicago to help his students remember the points of the book of Daniel. 
And his little song went like this. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. So we're going to do that. Each week we're going to, in our study, look at a challenging aspect of the life of Daniel and take the Daniel dare. There's going to be about 20 different studies in this book and we're going to be challenged to think and act and live in a very unique fashion and hopefully to be dared, challenged, to step it up to a whole new level of our Christian experience. To live a daring kind of a way. Our 26th president of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, once said, it's better to dare mighty things to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. The challenge will be then is to live on the high wire, so to speak. One man was having a conversation with a trapeze artist, speaking of the high wire. And in the conversation, the trapeze artist said, you know, we have a net underneath us as we walk across that high wire. And we have it there for two reasons. Number one, obviously, so we don't break our neck. Number two, we have that net there so we don't fall. Because let me explain. Imagine what it would be like for us to not have that net underneath us. We would be so nervous, we would miss and we would fall. But as long as that net is there, we would do things we wouldn't dare to do otherwise. We're more daring, we do more. Now let me submit to you that that's the very reason you and I ought to step up and live a more daring way, so to speak. Because the Bible promises in Deuteronomy 33, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. What better net than that? So the challenge will be in all of the book of Daniel is to go for it. Dare to do more. Be extraordinary. Today, I dare you. Be distinct. And as we read chapter 1, there are four principles that were true for Daniel that are true for us when it comes to being distinct. Number one, life happens unexpectedly. Some of you know that to be true. Life happens unexpectedly. You plan certain things and then it gets changed. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So life is going along nice and sweet in Judea. Everything's good. The sun comes up in Jerusalem. But one day they look out and the Babylonians are around them. And they attack the city. In fact, not only do they attack the city, they kill many of the people and take those who are left into captivity with them. What I want you to notice is the book opens up with two short statements. These statements cover the same event from two entirely different perspectives. Viewpoint number one, the viewpoint of secular history. Viewpoint number two, the viewpoint of biblical theology. 
Notice it says, Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Those are just the historical facts. That's the viewpoint of secular history. You can check any historical document of antiquity that talks about this, and that's what you will find. But there's another viewpoint presented. Notice it also says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. Now that's the viewpoint of biblical theology. And I show this to you here because those two perspectives will be interwoven with each other throughout the entire book of Daniel. You see, on one hand, man is active in history. On the other hand, God is also active in history. So consider it historically. In the year 605 B.C., there was a young man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who was becoming the new kid on the block, you might say. A rising political star. He would become eventually the ruler of the known world in antiquity. All because of a very decisive battle that happened in the town of Karshemish, southern Turkey. A very famous battle. If you know history, you know of the Battle of Karshemish, where the Babylonians fought two superpowers aligned with each other, Egypt and Assyria. It was a decisive victory for the Babylonians, defeating Egypt and Assyria, opening up really the rest of the world. It was easy pickings from then on. So, in 605, that same year, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And there were three successive sieges, 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and 586 B.C. when the Babylonians burned the city of Jerusalem with fire. And if you ever come to Jerusalem with me, I can show you stones that still bear the scorch marks of the fire set by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. that they have uncovered in recent years. So that happened historically. And when that happened... Some of the people were killed. Some of them were taken captive. Among those who were captives was Daniel. You know how old he was? Probably age 15, 16 or 17, right around there. Imagine what it would be like to see your child be taken captive 650 miles away. That would probably be the last thing you'd see before they kill you. So you would die in misery. That was the, that was the program. So unexpectedly, suddenly, this happens, and now the entire population of Jerusalem is in an uproar. However, though it happened unexpectedly, some people should have expected it. In fact, really most of them, if not all of them, should have expected it. Because God had predicted so much so many years before at different intervals in history. You see, way back in the giving of the law, Deuteronomy, when Moses was around. God, through Moses, warned them, listen, I'm giving you a new land. If you obey me and love me, good things are going to happen. If you disobey me, some pretty bad, gnarly things are going to happen, including this. This is Deuteronomy chapter 28. The Lord will bring a distant nation against you from the end of the earth, and it will swoop down on you like an eagle. It is a nation whose language you do not understand, they will lay siege to your cities until all of the fortified walls in your land, the walls you trusted in to protect you, are knocked down. They will attack all of the towns in the land the Lord your God has given you. That's warning number one. 
As time goes on, prophets arise and give several other warnings, each one more exact, more precise, like this one from Isaiah the prophet, chapter 39. The time is coming when everything you have, all of the treasures stored up by your ancestors, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your own descendants will be taken away into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of Babylon's king. So do you see, there's always two sides of histories. There's always the factual side and then there's the spiritual side. The factual side, the when, the how, the what, the where. But there's always the spiritual side, the why. Nebuchadnezzar attacked, the Lord gave. Both of them working side by side. So yeah, Nebuchadnezzar may be the new kid on the block. He toots his own horn pretty loudly. But God is the orchestra director. And Nebuchadnezzar to God is nothing more than a pawn on a chessboard and he is being moved around so that Daniel can get to a key position. It's a divine setup. So here's the principle. Yes, life may happen unexpectedly. But God is working supernaturally. Whenever life is happening unexpectedly, you go, oh no, I can't believe it. Slow down, calm down. Know that God is behind the scenes. As one author put it, God's ways are behind the scenes, but He moves all the scenes He is behind. Now I'm sure people in Judea were saying things like, how could God let this happen? Those are the bad guys. We're the good guys. Why would God let the bad guys attack the good guys? And I think Daniel would step forward and say, much like Paul the Apostle said when he was taken captive, I want you to know, brethren, that all these things that have happened have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. Or what Joseph, his predecessor, might have said to his brothers who sold him as a captive, as for you, you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it for good. So that's the first principle. Life happens unexpectedly. The second one is seen in the next few verses. And that is the world demands conformity. Now watch this, verse 3. Then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. We live in a world that has values and standards that they want you to conform to. They, they, they are uncomfortable with you not conforming to their idea of tolerance, their idea of what's important and not important. The world wants you to conform. Well, it was that way also in Nebuchadnezzar's world of Babylon. 
Nebuchadnezzar has a well-formulated, time-tested plan of taking the cream of the crop of the captives he had taken, training them, brainwashing them, so to speak, and letting them serve him in his palace. He has a four-pronged approach. In fact, as you listen to this four-pronged approach, notice how it is still effective today. Number one, isolation. Isolate the people. Take them from their homeland to my land. They're away from their family. They're away from their peers. They're away from their priests. They're away from the reading of their law, their scriptures, the worship of their God, and bring them over here, isolated. Number two, indoctrination. Notice it says in verse 4, they were taught the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. What's wrong with that? Nothing. However, the point here isn't just to train them academically, but to brainwash them, to steep them in the literature as well as the language. It's that literature that would influence their worldview. It would challenge their worldview. You can just imagine how esteemed, trained Babylonian professors could make an impact on young, teenage, impressionable Jewish minds. Everything they had been taught would be challenged. Their view of God, their view of man, their view of sin, their view of redemption. Everything they learned growing up would be challenged by a new Babylonian pagan worldview. Archaeology has also shown that among other things, they would be trained the Babylonian art of divination, fortune telling, telling the future. Babylonians believed in omens. They were very superstitious. They believed that there were terrestrial as well as celestial signs. And when those signs happened, they were either bad omens or good omens. And get this. They also predicted the future by looking at sheep livers. I don't know, when they wiggle and squiggle or point in a certain direction, that meant something to them. Can I just say that's a bad idea? I couldn't resist. They believed in these omens, and I just think they were really trying to pull the wool over their eyes. Okay, I repent. I'll stop. No more sheep jokes. This was basically a three-year graduate course to make them forget everything they had learned growing up and supplant that with new ideas. It's not terribly unlike what many Christian college students find on many secular university campuses. I've always found it interesting, and I've experienced it. Why teachers who are paid to teach English or chemistry or biology go out of their way to undermine the belief system of some of the young people in their class, targeting them, zeroing in, trying to dismantle everything they've learned. Isolation. Indoctrination. Third, concession. Let's get these young people to concede, to give up something. We'll make this so amazing for them they wouldn't want to go back. Look at verse 5. They were given daily provisions of the king's delicacies and wine which he drank. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar brought in the best caterers with the finest menu, the royal menu. Food fit for a king literally was given to them. Why? So they'd go, we never ate like this in Jerusalem. It was all about falafels and hummus. Now this is food. You just have to imagine what what kind of impression Babylon would make on a young teenager. If you were to walk up to the city of Babylon at that time, you would see walls, historians tell us, 300 feet high, 
85 feet thick, 56 miles long, that circumference, that city, the Euphrates River running through town. In the middle of the town were the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, tier upon tier of verdant greenery. If you were to walk through the Ishtar Gate, the most prominent gate, you would be on a boulevard that was 65 feet wide, um, tiled with limestone and marble, and flanked by red-tiled sidewalks. And so you're a young guy from Jerusalem. Your mouth is hanging open going, Wow, man, this is amazing. And we're being treated royally. And besides that, our God didn't protect us from these guys. Maybe it's not real. Everything that we learn maybe isn't real. Fourth was confusion. So you have isolation. You have indoctrination. You have concession. And the fourth step was confusion. Let's give them new names. Let's take away from them the most personal, precious thing they have, their own name, their identity, and change their identity. Have you followed this uh, news article about the girl in Iceland, 15 years of age? Uh, She's been named something by her mother, and she's been called that for 15 years. But the government of Iceland doesn't recognize that name because it's not on the list of approved names you can call your child. There's actually a list of names, and you can't go beyond that. So on her passport, her legal document, the government puts on their girl. That's her name, girl. Not her name. Her name is taken away, supplanted by the name girl. And so now there's this lawsuit going between her and her family and the country of Iceland. Notice that Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, is changed to Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect the king. Bel being one of the gods in the pantheon of Babylon. Hananiah is a Hebrew word that means beloved of the Lord, Yahweh. He's given the name Shadrach, which means illumined by the sun god, Rock. Mishael means who is like God, Meshach means who is like Aku, the sun goddess. Azariah means the Lord is my help. He's given the name Abednego, which means servant of the shining one, Nego, also one of the Babylonian gods. So life happens unexpectedly. The world demands conformity. And now we come to the very heart of the message. It's embodied in the third principle, and that is commitment begins inwardly. Look at verse 8. But Daniel, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank, therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies, And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. 
And at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh. That was a good thing back then. Today, that wouldn't be a compliment. Then it was. Then all of the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion, that is the other trainees, of delicacies and the wine that they were given to drink and gave them vegetables which I'm sure didn't go over very well. And Daniel was now public enemy number one after this with all the other cadets in school. Great. From the king's menu to vegetables and water. But the principle is in verse 8. Daniel purposed in his heart. Commitment begins inwardly. Daniel made a choice deep within himself. In fact, I would say it's this choice that makes him effective the rest of the book. If he doesn't make this singular choice... He will not be able to influence this nation like he did. It's this choice, this purpose of heart that made Daniel become the man that he was. One author puts it this way, and I want you to consider it in your life. All of life is filled with crises and decisions. There are right decisions and wrong decisions, high roads and low roads. And almost every day there will be a fork in the road. Where you are today is due to the turn in the road that you took yesterday. So what was the turn in the road for Daniel? What was the fork in the road where Daniel is at? Simply this. He made a choice. And the choice was to be distinct, to not go along with the crowd, in the words of the text, to not defile himself. What does that mean, defile yourself? There are things in life that can defile you, that can taint you, things in life that can corrupt or pollute you. See, for Daniel, I'm okay, he's thinking, I'm okay learning this stuff, I'm okay learning the language, I'm okay learning the history, I'm okay serving the king, but I will draw the line when it comes to what I'll eat, and here's why. Daniel was Jewish. He was used to certain kinds of food, kosher foods. There were certain foods that were prohibited by his law the laws of Leviticus, which we've been studying on Wednesday nights. Not only that, but history tells us that the foods in Babylon, before they got to the king's table, were sacrificed to idols in pagan temples. And to eat them is to partake of part of the worship ceremony of idolatrous paganism. So Daniel said, draw the line here. I'm not going to defile myself with this food. Now some reading this would go, what's the big deal, Daniel? I mean, you're 650 miles away from home. Nobody's there to see you. You're in Babylon, dude. When in Babylon, do as the Babylonians. Or they would have said, Daniel, I feel you're a little bit too legalistic. You're so narrow-minded. Daniel said, don't care what you think. Don't care what the king thinks. Here's where I will draw the line. You see, Daniel wasn't looking for an excuse because Daniel had a purpose. Only people that don't live with purpose are always looking for an excuse. It's been well said that an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Daniel didn't need an excuse. He lived with purpose. And his purpose was, I am not going to defile myself, and so I make this inward commitment right now, right here, to be distinct. You know how important that is? The book of Proverbs says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it proceed the very issues of life. 
It all begins with the choices that you make deep in your heart. So question, what's defiling to you? Certain books that you read or magazines that you look at or television shows that you allow in your home? Oh, it's okay. They only kill 40 people and say 150 cuss words in this movie. It's really good. Is it company you allow yourself to hang with or relationships that you're toying with that are defiling you? Because the secret to living a distinct life is simply this. Living a life with the awareness of nobody else may be looking, but God is always looking. Solomon in Proverbs put it this way, The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his goings. The writer of Hebrews even said, All things are naked and open before the eyes of the one to whom we must give an account. You see, your reputation is what you are on the outside, but your character is who you are when nobody's looking. And a person has purpose and character because he realizes at all times God is looking. Remember the story of Moses when he was just getting started and he was still living in Egypt and he's out there one day and he's observing how an Egyptian is mistreating a a Jewish person, a person of the children of Israel. And so he inserts himself and he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. You know what the Bible says? It says Moses saw this and he looked this way and he looked that way and he killed him. You know what his problem was? He didn't look that way. He just looked this way and that way. Nobody's looking. Boom. If he would have realized God is looking. That's purpose of heart. That's desiring and deciding to live distinct. So, commitment begins inwardly. Here's the fourth principle. And we'll close with this. When you live that way, when you're loyal to God, God always honors loyalty. One of the most amazing texts of Scripture says, The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth. Can you picture that? What a metaphor. To find himself and show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. It's as if God is looking on the lookout. Where can I find somebody who's really totally loyal to me? I want to honor that person. I want to show myself strong. Look at verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them. And among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus, or therefore, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. After three years of graduate school, Daniel is now about 20 years old. At that time, he is brought in for a personal interview with King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Daniel and his three buddies, in addition to their natural aptitude, their intellectual acumen, they also have God's favor and God's grace. And there's three results of how God honored them. Result number one, reverence. Look at verse 9. God brought 
Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, that doesn't mean life's going to be perfect the rest of the book. Oh, just wait. He'll get persecuted. Because they see God's favor is on him, so the enemies of God will attack him. But right now, God is moving him into a position so he has favor even in the enemy camp. Great proverb in Proverbs 16. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So reverence. Second result, preference, prominence. Notice in verse 20, they graduate at the top of their class. In all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better. In Hebrew, it's ten hands better. The idea is one of you, four, is worth ten of the other guys. You are acing the test. You are at the top of the class. You are more valuable in my kingdom. And third, influence. Last verse. Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. That's 536 B.C. So we started at 605 B.C. All the way 70 years later, Daniel has influenced four kings. He's influenced Nebuchadnezzar I. That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. He will influence Nebuchadnezzar II, also called Nabonidus. That's in chapter 4. He will influence Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 5. And then, when the realm shifts and is taken over by the Medes and the Persians, Cyrus the Great, he'll be around. That's influence, folks. That's longevity. Oh, there's something else I should mention. Another way that I believe God used Daniel. Every Christmas, we talk about these interesting set of characters that come from the East called Magi. Matthew chapter 2, they're chasing a star and they come to Bethlehem. You know the story. People say, well, who are the Magi? History tells us they were a priestly caste of Medes from Babylon. Babylonian priests, Medo-Persian priests, who are looking for a Jewish Messiah? How on earth did they ever get the idea to be on the lookout for somebody who is going to come and be the ruler? Well, if you've read the book of Daniel, you'll probably agree with most of the scholars who say it had to have been Daniel's influence in the court of all of the Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzars, and Cyruses that taught and indoctrinated based upon the vision of the future that Daniel gets to be on the lookout. Here's my challenge to you. Are you going to be a thermometer or are you going to be a thermostat? You know a thermometer. A thermometer just records what's going on around it. So if it's hot, it goes up. If it's down, it goes down. If it's colder, it goes down. Some people are like thermometers. You know, if, if the world's into this, I'm into this. If the world isn't, I'm not into it. And they're just going along with the pressure, going along with the group. If it's hot, it's hot. They're hot. But then there's the thermostat. It doesn't record what's going on. It regulates what's going on around it. Daniel was a thermostat. Are you a thermometer or are you a thermostat? We opened with a very interesting little quote from our 26th president, Theodore Roosevelt, who talked about getting out of the gray twilight, stepping into the light and living a daring life. Let me tell you about one gal who didn't live that way. She lived the opposite way. And I close with this. Her name was Nancy Jones. She was a spinster who lived in some little Midwestern town. She really didn't 
do much. In fact, the day that she died and the editor of the newspaper had found out that Nancy Jones is dead, he knew he had to write something in his newspaper to announce to the community that she died. The only thing is he couldn't think of anything she was known for. He asked around and couldn't find anybody who knew, so he decided that he would give the job of writing something in the newspaper for an obituary to the first employee of the newspaper that walked in that morning, which happened to be the sports editor. He said, Buddy, your job is to write some little word or words about Nancy Jones that will be put in the paper and probably placed on her tombstone since nobody really knows her or what she's done. So I hear that there is a graveyard somewhere in the Midwest and there's a tombstone that says, Here lies the bones of Nancy Jones. Her life held no terrors. She lived an old maid. She died an old maid. No hits, no runs, no errors. (laughs) Just like a sports editor would write. Hey, I don't want to live that way. When it's all over, I don't want to say, yep, played it safe. I'd rather have a few errors along the way, but live for those hits and those runs. I dare you, be distinct. Our Heavenly Father, when we look at the life of Jesus Himself, the one that you sent to save us, we see how unique and singular His life was so countercultural, so against the norm. So much of our Christianity has just become just sort of going with the flow, a cultural flow. Instead of the difference that is portrayed by the Lord Jesus and by the man Daniel. I pray, Lord, that as we work our way through this book and we get these challenges week by week, your Holy Spirit would would help us to not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds as you renew our minds the way we think pray that we would think clearly and act decisively I pray that we would commit inwardly and live daringly I pray for those Lord who are gathered here today who don't even know you They're so much like the world. They're part of the system with all of its ideas, ideas of what's cool and not cool, its idea of what God is and what God isn't, its ideas of right and wrong and truth and falsehood. And they're being regulated by that. They're going up and down accordingly. Maybe you birthed something in their hearts that makes them say, I believe there's something else there. I want to experience it. And if that describes you, and you're willing to receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life as Lord and Savior, then right where you're sitting, you can pray this. You can pray it out loud if you want. You can pray it in the stillness of your heart. But say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I pray that you'd forgive me. I believe that you died on the cross and rose from the dead. And I turn from my sin and I turn to you as my Savior. I want to live for you as my Lord. 
I want to live differently than I've lived. I pray you'd help me by your strength. In Jesus' name. For more teachings from Calvary Albuquerque and Skip Heitzig, visit calvaryabq.org.